Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If we're talking about progression, we can't have that in an echo chamber. And I think that much of the, the world that we live in even in a recruitment process, you, you and, and I don't know if you've been privy, but, you know, when you're recruiting, often people say, oh, you know, well, she's one of us or oh, we need some people you know, like, like us. She didn't get it or he didn't get it. They're not one of us. And actually what the subtext of that is, is we're not hiring someone because they don't think like us. And and the way that people think quite often are, is predetermined by where they're educated, where they grew up, how they lived. And then actually what we're saying is that we want the same people that think and perhaps even look like mm-hmm. us and that's what makes us feel comfortable. And I, and I really challenge that because actually to produce great work and compelling work, you need that discourse, you need that tug and pull, you need someone to sort of challenge how you think and actually not think like you. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter, where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello and welcome back to our second installment of Fashion No Filter Pass the Mic. We are here with our guest editor, Henrietta Galina. Thank you for being with us again today. (laughs) Before we get into our topic of the day, I really wanted to share with you something that Tamu shared in her email back to me when I thanked her for agreeing to come on and speak to us and for sharing her experience so candidly and honestly, which she did in in the previous episode, which hopefully you've listened to. She says, transparency, dedication, humility, persistency, and repeat. Use those while doing the work and figuring out what comes next. I really wanted to share that because I found it such a simple and powerful statement mission. So thank you, Tamu, because that really kind of, I think that's going to stay with me. Anyway, without further ado, let's get get into today's episode. So as you remember, last, last episode, in light of the rallying cry for our industry to put an end to systemic racism, um, and I guess in an effort to show up in this moment, we spoke to Tamu McPherson and Danielle Prescott, digital talent and style editor. And in this episode, we're moving to another facet of the industry um, as we're speaking to Jordan Mitchell about the role that PR has to play in the current environment. And uh, I don't think 
you often hear PRs being interviewed. And I was trying to understand why that was. And I'm wondering whether the reason we don't hear from them so much is because it's very difficult to get a kind of like, I want to say a, a meaty interview because everything that they say always have a, has a positive spin, either whether they're talking about what their clients want or what they're working on. I always feel like there's a filter on everything that comes out of a PR's mouth. So it's very difficult to trust them. I mean, you're not wrong. I think, I mean, I was an observer because I, I wasn't actually a PR, but I worked within a very big PR firm. And I think that part of it is this Olivia Pope element they're not meant to be seen, right? It's like this sleight of hand, like things just magically happened. But there is a whole host of people that are reorganizing every situation to make what they want transpire. And I think that's kind of the point. You're not meant to see them or know exactly how they're involved or exactly what they're doing. It's, it's always almost been a bit of a industry secret. Their role is spin, so <laughs> inherently you wonder if that's what's being told to you while they're talking to you. Yeah, I think that what their own personal opinions are also. You know, like, for example, as fashion journalists, our opinions are going to play into things, obviously, or, you know, consultants, all sorts of different jobs. But PRs, their point is not in any way to put across their own opinion. I sometimes wonder if they agree even with some of the people that they are promoting. And I'm not actually saying that in a way to like accuse PRs of being hypocritical. It's their job. And, you know, think about things like political PR. I mean, you can wind up uh, PRing someone you don't wholly agree with politically. That's also why I'm so glad that we managed to get Jordan Mitchell for this interview, because Jordan has been working in PR for 15 years now. And I've known Jordan for a few years, and she truly is one of the most outspoken and no bullshit kind of person. It's impossible not to kind of fall for her when you meet her, because there is just no filter when she speaks. And that's always been the case. I know that activism um, and being very candid is very trendy at the moment. And I, I, I hate to say that because it's kind of like implying that it's kind of implying that activism is a trend that holds market value. But unfortunately, I do think we are seeing a little bit of that at the moment. And that's why so many people are being accused of performative allyship. <laughs> To give you a quick introduction, Jordan is the Managing Director of Leading Talent and Brand Communications Agency, LMPR. Her roster now includes some incredibly diverse and talented women, such as uh, broadcaster and September British Vogue cover star, Clara Ampho, uh, the presenter and model activist, Charlie Howard, and well, you may as well know me, she represents me as well. Her day-to-day -day role covers personal talent management and publicity, strategic communications, and casting campaigns for big global brands. That's just to give you a little bit of an idea of who we're chatting to, but she will, I think, explain uh, a little bit about what PR is, because I feel like that's always something that our listeners often ask. I think it's one of the branches of fashion that is the least understood. People often don't really understand what it is that a PR does or why, why they need to be representing people and companies. But I think she is going to go into that. Yeah. And just one more thing. I think it's important to note how many strings PRs pull behind the scenes and how influential they really are. You know, when you get into the really big PR firms and the people running them, there's a lot of importance there. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing this interview. 
Yeah, what I love is that she does a really great job of describing exactly what she does and why she does it. So I think it will it will give people a lot of context as to the the world of PR just in that sort of short description. I think the idea was to really look into the role of PR in the current climate, especially given that PRs are literally paid to do what brands and media need from them. And we also really wanted to hear from Jordan's experience as a black woman in the fashion industry who's been working for, for the last 15 years in this space. So without further ado, Henrietta, we are passing the mic on to you and Jordan Mitchell. Hi, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I feel like Monday today has been like a year in, in sort of less than 24 hours, but I guess Always. that's a sign of a good thing. It's a sign that you're busy, which is great. I'm still in quarantine, kind of in quarantine. So every day seems to blur into another. So when you said Monday, I was like, okay, that's a, that, that could be <laughs> <Noted>. true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you as part of this Pass the Mic series that we're doing for Fashion No Filter. We have so mm. much to get into because I'm actually really interested in this facet of, of the fashion business, particularly as it pertains to the racial fallout. But before mm. we get stuck in, would you mind just introducing yourself and really describing a bit more about what you do so that we can really set up and frame yeah. the conversation for everyone listening? Absolutely. Well, my name's Jordan Mitchell. I am a publicist, but also PR. And I say that sort of it's it's kind of almost tricky to put yourself in boxes because actually the way I describe myself and the work that I do I'm a cultural strategist but for sort of the title purposes yeah I look after people and I represent brands and at the core of that it's just telling people stories in kind of cultural context that people can really relate to so that's kind of me does that kind of sum me up yes absolutely and I, and I actually really love the way you describe and position what you do and I think that the people that are the best in their fields often describe themselves outside of the direct discipline because I think ultimately mm -hmm. everything we do is underpinned by culture and our contribution to it so I really love the way that you've positioned what you do and I think that actually it makes for this conversation to be that much more interesting because we're really talking about kind of the culture of fashion, how that contributes mm -hmm. to culture at large and the positioning of themes and people and brands and publications. So I guess to sort of set up the conversation just generally, PR mm. has been quite an integral part of the fashion ecosystem for, I mean, for decades, right? It's been very much helping to control the narratives that people, brands, media are trying to put out a product, yeah. you know, positioning. I, I always look at it almost like the sort of Olivia Pope of the industry, right? You guys are Olivia, <laughs> you Olivia Pope things, whether it's fix situations, mitigate situations, manage crises, mm. shall I say, mm. or make things appear, you know, whether it's a yeah. product in a, on a media platform. Mm. And so we want to talk a bit today, I think, about the role of PR as it pertains to yeah. race and fashion, because when we're talking about controlling a narrative and crafting stories, I want to understand like what has the role of PR been and what are the opportunities of PR going forward? Because obviously there is something in the machinations that, you know, yeah. this role has been involved in. 
But I really actually want to center the conversation in more of a sort of moral argument. Mm. And I sort of say that because when I've had conversations with PRs previously, it's really met with this quite definitive answer of, well, I have to do that. That's my job. Or yeah. I, I have to, yeah. to make that work. My whole job is predicated on relationships. So I have to keep everyone happy. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. I can't stay in business if I'm not doing what the client wants. So rather yeah. than making it about that kind of black and white business mm. framing, I wanted to frame it more around a moral argument of what exactly is PR's role in this race fallout? Well, I think that PR plays an integral role because if you break down sort of what it means, it's public relations. And actually, I think over time, we've started to forget about the public part, the people at the end of that mission. So it's sort of been very much a sales tool and, you know, pushing a narrative. This is what we want without the listening. And I think that certainly the way that I work and the way that we work in the agency is that we always want to take a step back, observe what's happening, and then we map out what we should do in our response according to the current mood. And a simple example would be we work with a luxury lingerie brand and in the time of like a pandemic, and by the way, it will get to the sort of how race intersects with all of this, but when you think in the height of a pandemic where people are losing their jobs, fearing for sort of safety and all of the kind of things that came with um, COVID, the last thing we want to be doing is blasting out a narrative around, oh, buy these really expensive items because that's what we had planned in our calendar. It's very much kind of looking at what's happening and going, well, how do we adjust? How do we reevaluate and how do we change tact because the climate's changed and I think that even in terms of what I do for my clients and certainly you know I've got a real mix of clients from all sort of walks of life and I always kind of set my sort of my mission on what do we want to achieve for them and what does that achievement have for kind of greater society so Clara Ampho as an example for me you know she'd always had to kind of fight against you know covers when I think about peers that are in a similar space and that have achieved a similar thing to what she's achieved in her timeline and I'm thinking well you know what this girl she deserves a cover she should be on the cover of a bunch of magazines and yet we're still we're still fighting that fight and I think for me why is my role so important and what we do is so important because when we land those moments those cover moments or those bits of editorial for certainly for people it's actually opening up the conversation for other people that look like those individuals so for Clara getting the cover of Grazia and we've just shot another major monthly cover which will be out in September for me it wasn't just Clara's mission that we achieved there it was for all the other Claras out there who aren't even in the industry who aren't even in TV but can look at that and go okay there's space for me and that I'm represented and I think that is a sign of good work that's when I come home or come up from my kitchen where my office currently is and go you know what I did a good Mm. piece of work today because I didn't just do that for my client I did that for for the people at the end of the relations part and that's where I think good PR and good work is when you're actually making impact for people beyond just 
the the mission of your client and and purposeful work I think I've sort of summed that up that was that was <laughs> I forgot the question no you absolutely did and I, I really love that answer and I couldn't agree more to me that is why I do what I do also because I think that fashion marketing the images that we see out in media in advertising on tv and film very much inform how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how mm-hmm. we see others. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think what you describe is also a really progressive approach to PR. And mm-hmm. it, it feels a lot more democratic that, that yeah. maps against, you know, the rise of social media and how fashion has mm-hmm. tried to change and move with those times. But historically, mm-hmm. if we go back even, say, five to 10 years, that wasn't really the PR approach it was very much about getting ahead of the narrative and almost Mm -hmm. like that sort of mantra of let's give people what they want before Mm. they know they want it or let's Mm. tell people what to think it was very much like a top-down strategy so there were you know a few gatekeepers and they said this is what's in for the season here's who's hot here Mm. is who we're pegging to be the biggest success stories coming up and we're going to disseminate that and therefore that's what the public are going to process digest and that's what they're going to believe yeah so that was really kind of the setup and the framework in which we've found ourselves particularly as it pertains to systemic racism because those gatekeepers looked a certain way they believed in a certain type of beauty or a certain group of people should be successful and so we've seen that basically just replicate itself over and over again where fashion and beauty and media has been largely white with a particular Mm -hmm. western ideal of beauty so how do you think that that reckoning can be reconciled with the way PR moves today? Because there's still a lot of residual thinking from that era yeah, and also a lot of residual staffing because even the disparity agree. between the people who are publicists and what they look like and what their values yep. are still feel quite yep. archaic and can be quite old yep. school in ways, right? I agree. And I think that it's sort of a two-pronged approach, really. I mean, if we're talking about progression we can't have that in an echo chamber and I think that much of the the world that we live in even in a recruitment process you you, and and I don't know if you've been privy but you know when you're recruiting often people say oh you know she's one of us or oh we need some people you like like us she didn't get it or he didn't get it they're not one of us and actually what the subtext of that is is we're not hiring someone because they don't think like us. And, and the way that people think quite often are, is predetermined by where they're educated, where they grew up, how they lived. And then actually what we're saying is that we want the same people that think and perhaps even look like mm-hmm. us. And that's what makes us feel comfortable. And I, and I really challenge that because actually to produce great work and compelling work you need that discourse you need that tug and pull you need someone to sort of challenge how you think and actually not think like you and that's how you know in our office it's a real eclectic mix and and I really appreciate that because I like to be challenged on an idea and someone go well actually you know what I think we should approach it this way because and as long as they can back up why and there's a real sense of sort of thought that goes into why there is a different approach and why that's relevant I'm always open to change intact and I think that if we just have an office full of 
people just like us, you're never going to be challenged to think broader and to think better. And therefore, your influencer campaigns are going to look the same. And the, the people that you might cast for your lookbooks are going to look the same. And the journalists that you might gift are all going to be the same. And it becomes this really sort of samey, samey, very prescriptive approach. And I think what I'm liking about this time and now is that we're actually challenging ourselves to think differently and going, oh, actually, you know what? That last deck that I put out, which was just full of one type of looking girl, that's probably not good work because guess what? I'm alienating a whole other audience. And by the way, I'm not saying that's what I do because it certainly isn't. Mm -hmm. But I know I've been on the receiving end of decks when doing influencer campaigns or or whatever and I've seen been across things where it's like we need to mix this up <laughs> and I think you know it's important for us all to think and introspect and go how can I do better and I also think there's a conversation around sort of the language that we use when we talk about diversity because language is so powerful yeah. and sometimes when I hear language when we talk about diversity kind of going oh but guys we, we need to be diverse or oh but we need to mix it up because it's not diverse enough diversity needs to be at the forefront of your decision making and your ideas not the bit at the end you don't retrospect and add in color or people of color to make sure that you know we're satisfying now the new external this sort of new external gaze where brands are now being called out by the likes of Diet Prada and others for, for not being diverse. I think for me, diversity is like punctuality, right? The, the grammar or, or just basic things that you would expect from an employee to be able to do. So, you know, if, if someone sort of goes, oh, you know, here's this work, but I haven't spell checked it. Right, right. I haven't got my capital letters in there, but like, this is what I'm thinking. You're like, why are you showing me this work? You're, you should be embarrassed. And I think that that is the same for diversity. You know, it's not an afterthought. It's not, you're not doing anyone a favour. You're doing yourself a favour by doing good work. It's a diversity is a prerequisite of delivering good work well it's also about the vantage point because what you're describing is a bit of a status quo way of looking at it where there's the five models and you make sure that you have one black model one mm -hmm. a one asian model they usually have mm -hmm. very sort of western features like their white counterparts mm -hmm. and then you can have mm -hmm. the three or four white models and so it becomes mm -hmm. this formula that we've been looking at and that's what we used mm -hmm. to call diversity right which is how we get that kind yeah. of only one allegory which has become so prevalent in fashion but I wanted to yeah. just dig a little deeper because when you talk about the diversity of thought which is something that I I'm so glad you said that because I talk about this all the time because I when people say they're not like us you know mm. sometimes that does extend to other races right or other yeah. people on the gender spectrum or whatever it is also mm -hmm. about diversity of thought where we could actually mm -hmm. have interesting dialogue foster meaningful communication based on having that like you said that push pull and that tension you know because usually it's in that tension that you find the sweet spot of, of what actually is the right thing to yeah. do but Fashion traditionally is such a hierarchical system. Mm. Talk me through how that could potentially work in a PR setup, because 
I'm really interested to see how PRs, PR companies, publicists, PR agencies can really lead with their moral compass, right? So for instance, is it an option Mm -hmm. for an employee within a PR agency to say, wow, well, you know, that brand has really well-established anti-Black practices. So Mm. I know they're our client, but, you know, X, Y, Z. Is that Mm. sort of what you're talking about? Because there also becomes an economic factor in like, well, if we speak to that client about that, they might drop us. Or, you know, could you say, well, we can't go to that publication because they actually don't hire any people of color because they want a certain point of view and that's not right for our clients and that's not what we believe in. You know, that kind of disturbs that ecosystem of of how fashion works Mm -hmm. and that relationship and then your client won't get pressed on a certain media platform and that could impact the amount of traffic they get to the site to sell a certain product. So how can PRs, publicists, agencies, individuals be empowered to actually lead with a moral compass without it basically screwing with their business, ruining relationships, or does that even matter? Do you need to be able to make those sacrifices to be able to try to reconcile and help dismantle systemic racism? So I think, you know, our clients hire us because we're sort of, we're future gazers. We are the sort of line between them and the consumer in a way. And so there is an element of responsibility on our part to feed up to them when things need to change and be adjusted. And it's not from a sort of kind of this overly moral standpoint that we're like, you know, we are, we are the advocates of everything. It's more from a position of as a brand, you need to be positioning yourself within, you know, the cultural landscape as relevant and to be doing that, the, the output of the images you put out, what you're communicating, the people that you collaborate with need to be culturally relevant. And, and that is our job. And I think that, you know, anyone that's afraid to have an open dialogue with their, their client, the, the dynamics of that relationship isn't, isn't right. And, and sometimes you do have to make sacrifices and sometimes you do have to sort of part ways with people who, who aren't aligned with, forward thinking working practices because ultimately it makes you look bad I'm only as good as my last piece of work and if my last piece of work has been slated on diet Prada because we're sort of you know redundant and and not sort of advising our client properly then then that only serves to make everyone look bad Mm -hmm. absolutely I really agree I think it's really interesting because I do wonder if that is something that everyone's really thinking about because there is a lot of fear around clients and keeping Mm. clients, particularly in the agency setup and sort of further downstream in the hierarchy where you have director level, manager level, coordinator level, assistant Mm. level, where they're like, okay, can't fuck this up. You know, that mentality I used to work in a PR agency and it was palpable, you know, the fear around keeping your clients happy. So I was really interested to really understand if publicists, PRs, agencies could take really strong positions and I guess what that meant for their survival their reputation their relationships etc I think it's really important to do that I think that you're not doing the you know you're not working in a 360 modern way if you're not having real honest conversations with your client and you're not steering them based on you know the cultural landscape and and what is right and examples would be you know we work with a real range of of clients and people and some you know we work with charities and 
one of our clients is a men's health charity very different to this fashion chat but in terms of what we're talking about now in terms of advising clients it's important and we're saying you know you engage with the men you know engage with men but we need to be representing all kinds of men because the sort of what the traditional man you know that once we would you know be defined by sort of masculinity would be a heterosexual sort of athletic white man and actually we're like we need to show all kinds of men how they exist in today's society and what that looks like and and be really diverse in our thinking across gender across sexuality yeah so I think it comes back down to you know you're hired for a reason and it's because you're an expert in communication you're an expert in the you know the cultural landscape you're an expert in relevancy and that's your position and I think actually rather than sort of skirting around the issue by reminding yourself and your client as to why you're hired it allows you to have those sort of tricky conversations and I and I never think it should be about condemning someone it's not kind of going oh my god you know you're so out of step it's sort of gentle sort of suggestions really going well we should be looking at doing this and this is why and we should be engaging with these people and and this is why and eventually it gets to a point where the client gets it and they're really on board with it but that's because you've held their hand and you've helped them get there that's a really important point because it's not about sort of you know being really cross because people haven't been working in a type of way because this is for some people this is new information like you know for them they're like oh I actually thought the whole of England was just full of white people (laughs) and that (laughs) that we didn't realize that there's other people that we should be speaking to but okay thank you for you know making us think differently and yeah I, I don't think it should be kind of going on the offensive and it's attack and super negative it's this is an all an opportunity for us all to grow and all to do better and all to learn and anyone that's resistant to that to be honest I don't think they would be in business for much longer anyway to be honest in this landscape well especially when you're holding their hand and being so nice about it because I think what's different (laughs) about this time is that I mean that's a really great approach it's really kind it's compassionate it has empathy and kindness really underpinning the approach but also it's a really professional one to have particularly as a PR publicist but I think what's different Mm -hmm. about this time now is because we're dealing with a relatively small I mean Mm. comparative a relatively small sort of power structure if you think about the concentration Mm. of power in the industry it does Mm. actually feel quite frustrating because you're like okay for decades now it's looked a certain way and Mm. so I do think that actually this idea that there's not a clear path or that it's not clear what the problem is or that they hadn't thought about what they're doing I think that feels like less of the consensus right now because there's something about systemic racism that almost feels quite intentional at this this point you know like it it was funny because I was actually talking to someone a few weeks ago who headed a business who only has white employees And she genuinely was like, I didn't even think that this was part of the systemic problem. And and obviously you have to keep a really polite tone because it's a professional conversation. But Mm. genuinely in the back of my mind, I was like, it's such a visible issue. I'm struggling to reconcile in my brain 
how that has mm. gone unnoticed. I, I struggle to reconcile yeah. how you can have a fashion event that has only one black face or two faces of color and yeah. not see that as yeah. the challenge. And But that's also, it's also me because I, I'm not set up that way. I don't live my life that way. But yeah. I do wonder how much of this, like, well, it's really no one's fault. We can't expect everyone to know everything. I, I really wonder how that works in many cases particularly when we talk yeah. about how how the systemic structures have been architected right so I love the empathy and, and I definitely agree that there is some compassion and hand-holding and and all of that stuff but I I do wonder about how much of it is unintentional I guess is the long-winded way I was trying to make that point yeah and you know what I think it comes back to that whole thing around someone like us someone like me certainly at that kind of recruitment process and it's interesting because whilst we talk about we sort of talk about it kind of CEO level and then we sort of talk senior management and then sort of the that entry level but actually I think some of the real gatekeepers are on that HR side of things and this is kind of going into a whole different space but actually I think there is a lot more pressure that should be applied onto sort of HR both from a recruitment process but also from a once you do get people of color within these organizations how are they supported throughout that process and when you come through to sort of microaggressions and sort of internalized racism and and all of those kind of things that then you know people of color experience within the work workplace they then don't even have someone to go to so there's the challenge is also that those sort of entry-level roles where you know people of color come through or, or or whatever the sort of roles are within the business but sometimes they're not even being retained or staying because they're navigating all of these sort of other kind of prejudice and ignorance really I, I, an, an example would be I remember I was interning for Instar magazine it doesn't exist anymore which is why I feel fine to say it and kind of on it must have been like my second or third day and one of the sort of I think he was like a fashion editor or director at the time but said to me walk one boom clot oh gosh and I- <laughs> 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 we laugh now <laughs> and actually this is like the I'm assuming you're I'm assuming um, you're talking about I'm assuming he was white yes yes yeah he was <laughs> And, just to uh, just to clarify the reaction just to clarify yeah I know because that, that sort of does make a difference in a way I mean equally as inappropriate but I just thought wow that was sort of my first internship out of uni and to be honest my my kind of experiences of racism have only really kind of been in the workplace since I've sort of graduated and you've had sort of like the microaggressions growing up like when people are like oh you're so pretty for a black girl or oh you're not like them you're one of us and you know you're kind of like you, you sort of you don't really in, take it in it makes you feel uncomfortable but you don't really know what it means and you don't know why it doesn't feel good until you're much older and you can kind of look back and go oh okay I can yeah. see what was wrong there but certainly kind of outward racism really happened in the the workplace and and I just thought you know I'm here just trying to fit in really I'm just like like, I'm here just minding my own business I'm just here minding my own business I'm not trying to spot anyone like it's kind of this notion of what 
blackness is and you you even see it when you watch interviews when kind of talent and I'm not necessarily talking about my own talent but like I've seen like Jay-Z being interviewed on kind of British TV um on chat shows and they go like oh cool man and start sort of assimilating this kind of like really ghettoized version of blackness and you kind of think wow I'm sure and I'm unclear as to why you can't interact without it sort of being parodied in this sort of ghettoized bizarre well that's the, that's the, well that's the gaze it's very reductive and I, and that's what causes the systemic racism it's implicit bias it's discrimination and it's also wide stereotyping of this idea of all black people are the same or all black people yeah. look the same I describe it as a, <laughs> as the death of a thousand paper cuts because, and like yeah. you said, you can't really describe why microaggressions really upset you. They just make you feel uncomfortable. It's like a varying spectrum mm. of how they make you feel, but it used to be very difficult to talk about. I remember, you know, even small things like, oh my gosh, I've just got back off holiday. Now I'm as dark as you. And I'm like, oh God, yeah. this is also problematic. <laughs> but, you know, to that point to say something particularly with the frequency that it occurs. I mean, you would just yeah. be talking about this all day. And and I yeah. think it's an important point that you raise when you say it was an unwarranted microaggression of you just are trying to get along and someone feels comfortable enough to just come up to you and say that, even though that's not your vernacular yeah. or how you carry yourself. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about everything you've said from the microaggressions to are we fostering environments through HR and having that counsel right through to the role of HR and hiring practices, which much like PRs and publicists, the role of HR is usually to protect the company and to look look out Mm. for the CEO. So it really does come Mm. from the top. It's been my experience that the HR or the head of HR is really there to have the CEO's back. So if that HR is aware of the CEO's preferences and what makes them quote unquote thrive or how they would prefer to work or what they see as a quote unquote culture fit, because that's the other one. They're more inclined to go along with that because they are also thinking about their jobs, their upward mobility, et cetera, et cetera. But also keeping a calm workspace where they don't have to deal with certain fallouts, right? Because when you have diversity of person, diversity of thought, you tend to have a lot more to deal with that could be uncomfortable to handle. I think that there are a lot of challenges around the HR department and what their perceived role is and what their actual role is. And then them being not only correctly identified to lead that charge, but also being empowered to almost have independent thought to be able to say, okay, I recognize there needs to be more diversity. Could be an issue with the CEO, could be a bit of a, you know, workplace culture challenge to integrate but I'm going to take it upon myself to do that versus trying to have an easier life and you know quote unquote set the company up for success you know yeah and I think it does become that thing where it's wanting an easy life and and actually for me doing good work in in whatever aspect that area is sometimes you have to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and you know I often put myself in uncomfortable positions not not just for, not just for the sake of it but I challenge myself and I challenge the expectations I even have on myself for, for my clients because you know there is that whole thing of internalized racism that 
there is that whole thing of you think, oh, well, that's just the way it is. Someone's not going to get something because that's just the way it is. And I set up and, and kind of set about each day trying to dismantle those things. And, and it's so important to me that I, you know, I fight fiercely for the people that I represent because I genuinely believe in them. And, and that's why, you know, I won't pick up, particularly when it comes to kind of personal, personality-driven t- t- um, clients and talent, I won't work with anyone, regardless of what their accolades are or sort of, you know, how commercially viable that they could be for us, if I don't genuinely dig into their personal story, if I don't genuinely believe in what they're what they've set out to do and that might mean that my roster can be quite diverse in the sense of you know I have some really high profile people and then some really kind of small niche industry people but the sort of running theme within all of that is that they've all got a real purposeful mission and I can get behind that and I can stand up in front of anyone and say well they deserve this cover they deserve this campaign they deserve to be profiled in this space because they've done the work and I believe in them and I'm a real advocate for that and I think all of my relationships and contacts that I've fostered over sort of 10 or so years they know that when I come and turn up for someone they believe me because I only champion people that genuinely are worth standing by. I love that and I believe in that and I also operate in the same way as do a lot of people of colour and black people who Mm. I know who work in the industry and I think that conviction and that willingness to be uncomfortable that doing the work taking on the labour is very much a trait that we carry largely because we are used to being in uncomfortable situations in the industry so we're almost willing to go through that again or tenfold in order to help reconcile the systems that put us in those situations in the first place so when we talk about conviction or or doing the work that's definitely something that the current rhetoric has been centered around black people Mm. and people of color what are your based on your experiences because I guess what I was going to ask you next was like what have your experiences Mm. been Mm. as a black woman in the Mm. corporate environment I think your uh blood clot clot example was (laughs) (laughs) was so off the chain was so off it was so off the chain that I think we have a barometer of how wild it has been um so I guess I'll I'll kind of divert the question now into this we're doing the work we're more comfortable with being uncomfortable because we've been uncomfortable in this unjust Mm. system what advice would you impart so that that could be extended to our white counterparts to be uncomfortable and do that uncomfortable hard work I think you know what it's about just it's introspecting it's looking at yourself and going what can I do with my power and privilege in the room and there are lots of people that use their power and privilege for themselves they will take ideas of off other people they will sort of repurpose things as their own and it's all just self-serving I have always been and you know I think maybe that is about color and heritage and and seeing sort of women in my bloodline really turn up Mm. for other people time time again and so it is inherently who I am but I think stepping back and thinking how can I use my power in the room to leverage and to support someone else in that moment there's nothing more powerful 
than doing that. There's nothing more powerful than being able to give someone else a platform. That's a sign of success. For me, I measure success by how much I can help other people, whether it is sort of through charity, whether it is through the work that I do, whether that is helping mobilize family members and friends and and giving them a sort of step up. I think it's about everyone has a bit of power and privilege. And I think, you know, if I was giving a takeaway, it's just stopping and thinking, what can you do to, to kind of create an opportunity for someone else. So if it was giving work experience to that black girl you discounted because you didn't think she was one of us, maybe pick up the phone and give her a go. Because I was that girl once, you know? I love it. You mentioned Jay-Z earlier. There's actually a line in a Jay-Z song, which obviously, because I have a memory like a sieve, (laughs) can't reference the song or even the bar, but he re- references Perfect. that where he's like, you know, if if the people surrounding me are not also winning and balling, then none of us ball. And I just thought yeah. that is the mentality. When you talk about your bloodline, that is how a large contingent of us grew up. That's very much the particularly like an immigrant mentality of like, we all have to figure mm. this out together. Like we all have to like help each other out. None of us know how to do this and we can we can only all get there if we get there together and so that I feel like is a large part of our makeup and who we are how we've grown up and that's the mentality of a lot of the cultures that we engage in hip-hop and and certain music and certain literature when you look at black academia or literature Mm -hmm. that's very much part of that mindset so I think it's really interesting actually when you bring in other unrelated references as it pertains to fashion when we think about those familial experiences Mm. when we think about music when we think about other components of black culture that inform who we are and how we move through the world because that's also something that's largely misunderstood in fashion it's it's appropriated and it's very much it's very much projected but it's very little understood and I think that's also really interesting as well and that could also go some way in just even understanding just what just what we're talking about I agree. And, and I think that whole piece around cultural appropriation, it's a really, it's, it's so nuanced, isn't it? Because, you know, someone might take an African print and feel like they're paying homage to, you know, a, a specific tribe or era, but actually by not referencing back where they got those ideas from and just repurposing as their own is when it becomes quite problematic and I see so many sort of designers and there's one in particular that I have in mind who I'm not going to say but I I see a lot of her work through some of the interior stuff and some of the jewellery and I'm like okay that is very much taking from or kind of appropriating a, a, a different culture but you're not paying it forward you're not sort of putting a spotlight on on those communities and so you know the western culture just look at their work and go oh my god it's so innovative it's so cool that's amazing but without understanding sort of who did the work in the first place you know and I think that's where I'd love to get to a place where you know if we're going to be inspired by other cultures I think that's so brilliant but let's collaborate let's kind of go okay well I'm inspired by you know said African artists rather than just take the the design or take the aesthetic I I want to do an above the line partnership so that I'm giving them a platform as much as I'm platforming myself and I think that's that could be an interesting dynamic oh 100% it's like 
don't just take allow everyone to actively participate and benefit but also yeah appropriation to me I look at it from a slightly different angle in addition to everything we just spoke about Mm. um in addition to that I think about it's interesting when you think about how much we can feel misunderstood in the fashion space particularly in the corporate structures and behind the scenes Mm. and how few of us there actually are yet we're everywhere Mm. our influence is everywhere our image is everywhere our work is everywhere or seemingly everywhere yet there's so little to be understood about blackness to your point of that reductive view of bumper car it's like Mm cool, that's what you've gathered from this. But for everything that we put out there, that's either inspired by blackness or projecting blackness because that's the call that you're trying to sell. It's interesting that you're looking at me in this really reductive term based on how much value we bring to the industry that you wouldn't even really recognize me as an equally intelligent peer. So I think those more sort of nuanced ideas really come into Mm. it when we talk about appropriation as like what is deemed as valuable and then Absolutely. how people are reduced to, you know, trompe <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm never going to get over that. That was really... Right. Never. <laughs> never. I, know. I, I feel like it's been, like, resurfaced because I literally just said it out loud now, and I'm like, wow, that was really off-key. But I think, you know, to your point about the corporate structures and not having sort of Black voices and people of colour within the sort of tapestry of work and everyday life who are helping to steer and produce you know these external images I think that is where it becomes dangerous in a way because again to your point about kind of appropriating and just taking ideas that of what you think of blackness and then projecting your idea on it that's also we don't want that I don't want someone else's idea of what black culture is and it be packaged and sold to me as this is blackness because I think that is problematic in its its own way I I think that you know where we have to do the work is truly reflecting diversity behind the scenes it's who's shooting the campaigns Mm -hmm. it's also who's part of the casting process you know it's it's that whole kind of 360 that's so important and as much as we love Stormzy for an example Stormzy doesn't represent all of black men it doesn't represent sort of blackness in popular culture but if you're not having people that are immersed in black culture then you're probably only going to be reaching for the same names that you're hearing again and again and again and so you know even for me I, I watched an amazing film well the film wasn't amazing but it was a really interesting and the story was incredible a film called farming and there were so many amazing themes that came up from that and and actors that came up on my radar who weren't before but that's because I'm not just saying I'm watching this because I'm black but I'm I'm interested in that film because I guess I probably am because I'm black because it was about you know an an African actor director who was part of this movement in the 70s where he was farmed out you know Nigerian children it was a term they were called they were farmed out to white foster parents and this was a thing where you know they were trying to give them a better life and that's what kind of plugged me into that sort of the film it wasn't kind of the cast or anything it was just I was really interested in the subject matter so I feel like you know in order to 
have diversity of thought of ideas you genuinely need the people from the culture to be part of that conversation right at the top exactly otherwise you're just going to get the same names and the same faces exactly and and we kind of talked about that in our previous conversation with Danielle Prescott and Tammy McPherson but while I think everyone should be celebrated and and the bigger names are wonderful fashion tends to go with the more recognizable legendary iconic the Rihanna the Beyonce the Naomi Campbell's to represent a black point of view and they actually you could argue transcend race because they are icons they're stars yeah so when you see Rihanna you see a plethora of things she is an icon that transcends most things she transcends music she transcends everything because she's a larger than life character so it's also not a fair representation in terms of the breadth of who we are as a people and so I guess to bring it back round to PR and that's what I love about these conversations right whenever we're talking Mm -hmm. about race and fashion it's really hard to keep it within the parameters of a certain discipline because everything is so connected. And that's like, I'd liken that to culture. That's why fashion and culture are so intrinsically linked. So to wrap this up, how much of everything that we've discussed do you think we're now armed with? We have these conversations. We've been having them for decades. We've just been having them behind the scenes in our kind of silos, right? We're now beginning to have more public conversations, obviously, as this racial fallout has happened in fashion over the Mm -hmm. last couple of months. But given everything we've spoken about on this Mm. public forum, how empowered do you think publicists, PRs, and people that work at these agencies and in these companies, how empowered do you think they are now to actually deploy these approaches and these strategies and have these challenging and difficult conversations? I think that now there is a there is an almost an open forum for these conversations and an expectation to be able to have this dialogue without being, I I don't want to say challenged, but I think without being shut down. Put simply, if you had a problem in this space before, if you wanted to talk about race in this way, you would just shut down. No one wanted to hear about it. They were offended. They would be offended if you were to ever challenge you know or anyone on this kind of subject matter an, an example would be Caroline Hirons who's an amazing woman and as a white woman she operated as an ally for black people people of color by doing the work putting a post out where she basically looked at all of the magazine covers I think it was for the last year or the last sort of 18 months or so And then worked out how many people of colour were on those covers and almost did a chart on sort of the publications who were sort of, you know, doing the work and putting diverse faces on the covers and then the others who just didn't. And I think by making that so public, it made everyone feel uncomfortable and made everyone have to internalise and look at themselves And I think that's where the change is, that we've got more visible allies because we actually need people who aren't black to be speaking up for us as well, for us to be able to make the change. Because, you know, us on our own, our voices won't carry. It has to be a unified approach. And so I think think the fact that we now have got allies of people who aren't black, if I think about Sarah Moa using her platform speaking about the fact that the education system is flawed, It's not representative of, you know, all of the people of colour in history. It's those voices that we need to lean on who are going to also help mobilise change. 
Absolutely. I definitely think it is a collaboration. I keep referencing this, but my favourite saying to come out of this entire movement is we are no longer asking for allies, we're asking for co-conspirators because I think it really is about equity for people of colour and black people in the industry. And I think once we get that equity, that's when we can rebuild fashion and the fashion system in a much more egalitarian image. I don't know that it's about the current, you know, white power structures building that for us and accounting for us. I think it's about us building it together. So collaboration really is at the heart of the matter. And I think this is such a perfect note to end on because Mm -hmm. honestly, seriously, I could actually quite literally talk to you all day. I feel like we are (laughs) so aligned on everything we've spoken about. So it's been such a wonderful and substantive conversation. You're so wonderful. Oh, you're so wonderful. (laughs) We're going to take this line. I'm just going to call you and we can kind of talk all night. Keep talking about (laughs) it and doing the work. Absolutely. You're you're so wonderful. This has been such a great chat. And um, thank you so, so much for joining. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Okay, guys, what a great conversation to listen to. What are your first reactions? I know I, I feel like a real light was shone on uh, what PRs actually are doing and their responsibility in the industry. What, what did you guys think? I mean, I'm obsessed with the sentence, you can't have progression in an echo chamber because I feel like that's like literally the, the, the moral of this whole generation that we, uh, this whole generation where everything kind of exists in a vacuum. And we're seeing even things like elections, you know, being mispredicted because we're all kind of talking within our micro bubbles. And I think to hear someone in fashion and in PR kind of reminding us that um, unless you are speaking to lots of different people and you're getting enough people in, in the room and listening to these different perspectives and hearing these different perspectives and realizing that not everybody looks and thinks like you, you are not going to be able to make progress. Um, and you also probably will not be understanding what's really going on in the world. 
And obviously we know that fashion exists in the real world. So I thought that was really an important takeaway. And we have been reminded in the last few weeks, like all over the internet, uh, for everything. It goes for fashion, but it also goes for our political opinions. It goes for, goes for everything, what you're reading, what, you're, what magazines you're subscribing to, what, what newspaper you're picking up. I think if you are truly going to have a better understanding of the world, the only way is to diversify. And by that, I mean listening and reading as much, uh, as many different perspectives as possible. And I think, yeah, that's just a very good point that she made. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting having such an honest conversation to your earlier point about the way that sort of PRs position themselves and speak. Uh, she speaks so freely and so candidly and honestly about the machinations of, of how PR works and and wasn't really deterred by us positioning this, you know, or she wasn't really deterred by the positioning of it being a moral argument. She was very much speaking truth to all the things that have happened and need to happen. And I think it's interesting because ultimately, you know, publicists, PR agencies, I mean, full transparency have been really complicit in exactly what's been happening in, in, uh, fashion and has a lot of the same problems. I mean, we just saw recently, actually, after we recorded this episode, that even BOF have started digging into the machinations of PR and and that whole world of how they're working with brands and also what their sort of racial makeup is and and their treatment of people of color. So I think we are starting to speak more honestly now, and I think people are feeling a lot more comfortable to to speak out. But I thought that Jordan was a real magical person to speak to in that respect because she's so honest and open and candid which is something that we're not seeing particularly um, under this veil of sort of fear you know around keeping clients and losing jobs and you know the role of PR is changing so there's so many things that are changing in real time that I think is making this racial fallout element feel even more unnerving uh, in that sort of PR realm. Absolutely. And I know there are lots of great PRs, um, maybe that are a little more junior or maybe not, that listen to this podcast. And um, hopefully they will see Jordan's words as as much of an inspiration as we have, um, because I really think that she's got her eye on the ball. What I also love about this conversation is what was really evident is how everything is so connected. You know, we started out really centered in PR and publicists and and how that whole world works. And we ended up veering into just what it is to be a black person in the industry, what these corporate structures are like. And it just, you just realize how naturally everything's connected and you, you really kind of are able to veer away from the actual discipline you're talking about, which has happened in, you know, previous conversations and following conversations. And so that's one of the things that was also really interesting to speak to her about and those sort of shared experiences that still felt you know, there was almost an element of nostalgia when I was talking to her because we had so many shared experiences, but just hearing it so openly and so candidly from someone that I don't know so well, it it had a newness to it, which was interesting to grapple with. But yeah, you know, digging deeper into microaggressions was a lot. It was weirdly hilarious because of sort of joy de vivre, but also really horrifying to just think, yeah, that's happened to me many times as a woman of African descent where people just felt really comfortable to just be like, I'm just going to do this. And so it's interesting to see just like 
how deep rooted and insidious microaggressions are, but also how we've normalized it because it ha- it really did get to a point where, you know, when you're starting out or as you progress through the industry, you just normalize a lot of behaviors that, you know, when you hear them sort of in a completely different context against this racial fallout, you're just like, that's fucking insane. And I didn't say a single thing. I thought it was weird or I felt upset or I didn't even think anything of it, whatever the range of emotions are. We've normalized so much. And I think this time of reckoning has really, I know that when I've spoken to a lot of my former colleagues or you know friends of color or my black friends or family members, it's really interesting to look at how much we've internalized and normalized and how, what that's sort of done to, you know, done for how we moved in the space previously and then how we plan to move forward outside of this. It really struck me at one point, it seemed like Jordan was actually realizing with you that horrible comment uh, that that person made that like, because it's just so extreme, you guys were kind of chuckling about, but it's just so bizarre. I think it was her repeating it. She, She hadn't thought about it in a really long time and saying the words out loud again, because obviously it's something that she will have remembered, but hasn't vote, like hasn't said out loud. And saying that out loud, I think even she shocked herself. She was like, whoa, that is a... And that's why I think you both ended up giggling about it because it's just so intense. It was shocking, well, yeah. I, that's, it was a very complicated moment because I personally was grappling with a number of things in real time and then really thought about a number of things after it happened, after we spoke about it, which is that she said she hadn't thought about it in a long time and she hadn't said it out loud. And that in and of itself is part of the trauma where you're like, I never said anything. Like I normalized it, I brushed it off, I laughed it off. I didn't want to cause any trouble. Like there were all of these things that, like I said, in this, in this setting, in this context, you're like, that was really fucked up. And then you're remembering how screwed up it was, but then you're also remembering that it really actually wasn't that extreme. I think that's the thing. It's like, yes, it sounds extreme in the context that we're talking about it, but in your day-to-day movements, in your day-to-day of how we move through fashion, that actually isn't extreme. Like literally people are like, what one home girl? Like, how's it going home girl? Yeah, man. Like people just feel really comfortable doing that. They think it's a, it's a way to ingratiate themselves or they're being endearing or they're being, you know, it really is something that is really difficult to unpack and then difficult to communicate in real time. And then that brushed against a number of microaggressions, which I always describe as a death row a thousand paper cuts. That was probably one of seven things that happened that day. And then you have to pick your battles and then you have to prioritize. And then you, you, know, you have to go to make yourself feel comfortable so you could do your job and so you can be articulate and then be the best and outwork everyone. And all of that is while you're also doing a job of work, right? So there's a lot there and I think there's a lot to think about. And so we were laughing because it, yeah, was kind of, like wild and hilarious but it was also just the like fuck me this is a lot you know it was almost like that it wasn't even that we were laughing at what was said it was just this laughter of just like you know you laugh you cry you know and so it was it was very very layered I thought a lot about that moment and I'm still processing all of the things that happen off the back of experiences like that particularly over a 10 or 15 year career I mean it's a lot For sure. And there's just something else that I want to highlight. And it's actually quite similar to what I said in the conclusion of the last episode. But again, I think that this certainly for the, you know, white listeners among us, this is also about understanding the true impact of these microaggressions, because 
I have been working in the industry again for like 10 years. I have heard these microaggressions pass, you know, by my desk before. I certainly have. And they didn't make the proper amount of impact on me, honestly. And I think that, you know, that's part of this moment of reckoning as well. White people need to just wake up and that phrase you keep using, Henrietta, death of a thousand paper cuts is like really, um, it really hits hard because I, I can only imagine what it's like having a million paper cuts without anybody around you even realizing you're getting them or people realizing and not giving a shit. I mean, one or the other, right? Uh, because if it's not stopping, either people don't care or they don't realize and both are bad. I think for me, the, the real uh, visceral nature of, uh, and point of the analogy is that a single paper cut in silo is not that big of a deal. Like no one's going to be like, oh my God, I had like, you don't really, you're like, it kind of hurts and it, it's, but it's okay. Or like, no one cares. Like the whole point is it's relative. So it can really hurt, but it also might be something to breeze over. It's usually something that people don't care about. Like if you literally went to the hospital or went to your friend and was like, I, ha I got a paper cup, most people would probably just be like, okay, cool. If you keep getting it, it gets jarring and painful. And then if you keep, keep, keep getting it, you could actually potentially bleed out. And I think that's the whole thing. And it happens so slowly and it happens so deeply. And it, it just is this repetitive thing that it's the compounded effect that really becomes hugely problematic in how you see yourself, in how you move through the world. I talk a lot about black trauma and it sounds really dramatic, but I do think that when we talk about microaggressions, when we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about so many things in this racial fallout, there is trauma there. And I think that's really what we need to be looking at because I think when we talk about how are we going to dismantle it and how are we going to come out of this, I think, yes, we talk a lot about accountability, but no one's really talking about like, what does that actually look like as an active term? What is that? Is that, you know, and, and how does that work on a spectrum? So yes, there's like, don't do the microaggression activity, right? be more mindful, educate yourself, listen more, surround yourself with people who are different from you so that you can learn from them. And for osmosis, you can understand how to be a better ally, a better co-conspirator. Then there's also like, if you see something, say something. Like, I'm sure that even that Wagwan sort of comment didn't happen in an empty room. So it's also about acknowledging, I, I've seen so much literature around like, this is what a, a microaggression is. And it's like, yes, I do understand we have to educate people but the idea that we don't know that this is inherently wrong it's like we know that that's wrong but also we know that commenting on someone's hair or commenting on someone's skin color is also wrong but we don't say anything mm. to support or to stand up for that behavior and so I think that when we talk about accountability and complicit and complicitness and a lot of themes that we're talking about in this racial fallout I think what does it actually mean I raised in the last issue you know if equity looks like a few people giving something up, I keep circling back to that because in speaking out, in speaking up, you could also stand to lose something. And I, I really wonder like how much of that are we really talking about when we think about 
being an ally and being a co-conspirator. You know, if you, for instance, if you said to, we keep using Chanel as an example, so I'm going to go back there. If, you know, the most anointed, you know, exalted person, Chanel, was doing something that you were like, this is not cool. Like, would you say something if you stood to lose gifting or a place at the show or you know would you would you do that would you do that if it potentially meant giving up a paycheck and I think these are the hard questions that we have to ask and and actively get answers for so that we can understand what the path forward is and how people are really going to move differently and reorganize themselves because I think for all of the talking we could talk about microaggressions but I'm more interested in like okay you're maybe not going to say something that's shitty but will you speak up if you hear something shitty yeah, it's very interesting that, especially because I think I've always spoken up in real life, as in if something happened in real life, I would say something, but I've never, like, I've probably not been as vocal on social media. And I think that's something we, in the last few weeks that we've started to realize it's very difficult to dissociate the two in this day and age. And that unless you're kind of showing your true colors on all these platforms that you're using to make money and, and promote yourself, then you're not you're just not making a real effort because that is also a place where you stand a lot to lose if you make a comment. So it's an important place to make a comment. I don't know. I personally, in my personal experience, I think that I would so much rather in real time have someone be a truthful ally or co-conspirator in real time in the corporate structures, in those professional settings. I'm really less interested in what people are saying on social media, because as we know, that could really be performative. And I think that the the real test of allyship is is what you do um, on a human and personal level behind closed doors. So I would almost argue that you're more inclined to really put your money where your mouth is and stand by your word by actually in real time saying, hey, you senior person that might not invite me to the show or gift me a bag, that was wrong. Versus calling out racism as a general sort of problem on social media. Yeah, I I agree. I actually think that that is almost easier. Not that it shouldn't be done, but again, it's going back to if you stand to lose a seat at a show, if you stand to lose a paycheck, you know, how much are you willing to sacrifice for yourself? And I think I think that's something for all of us to really think about in terms of putting, yep. putting our money where our mouth is. Well, guys, maybe that's a great place to leave it. It's given us a lot to think about. Henrietta, thank you again for that brilliant conversation. And we will see you soon for the last installment of this mini series. Thanks, everyone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.